Welcome to A Sensory Emotional Lens. I am Michelle Parkins. Welcome back to A Sensory Emotional Lens. There has been a lot of buzz around our practice lately with different diagnoses, and there usually is, but there tends to be certain times of year where this comes up more often, and this tends to be one of them. Um, Lots of parents asking about different diagnostic categories, different diagnoses that are being considered for their children, and so we just wanted to take some time to dive a little bit deeper into different diagnoses and their overlap with sensory processing. So sensory processing and social-emotional differences show up in many, many different ways and lead to many different ways of being, and ways of being can also be understood as behaviors. So it's natural as parents to research, seek advice from various professionals. It's also natural for people to just provide us as parents information, even if we're not seeking advice or recommendations. So I think it's it's feel can feel very flooding, um, particularly if there are diagnoses that are being kind of thrown our way and that can feel very overwhelming and uncertain um, and also help kind of lead to us feeling like maybe we're not considering everything. So I'd like to take some looks at the different presenting behaviors through our lens, our sensory emotional lens, um, and clarify some of this as far as how we think about this. Many professionals have their own lenses, and so that is where we end up with this confusion for parents, where there's different diagnoses, different sets of recommendations, different ways of looking at the same exact behavior, um, and it can become a little confusing. So some of the acronyms you've likely heard, um, either just in discussions around you or, or maybe even considering your own child's way of being, ADHD, OCD, PDD, ASD, ODD, PDA, right? It gets very confusing sometimes to hear all of these different things. But what if it's SPD? What if it's sensory processing disorder? Or what if it's both? What if there's a diagnosis of um, ADHD or anxiety and sensory processing disorder? Um, So it's really common for us to see kids in our practice with several diagnoses. Sensory processing differences overlap with many, many, many diagnoses, and that's why we see this occur. So for example, we see an overlap in ADHD and sensory processing differences, anxiety and sensory processing, depression and sensory processing, um, OCD and sensory processing, autism and sensory processing, ODD, and so basically all of the things that we just listed can have a component of sensory processing differences in them. And this is research-based as well as anecdotal situations that we see come up in our practice. So sometimes they're simultaneous. A specific diagnosis and sensory processing are as both happening, right? There's a sensory processing disorder or difference and another diagnosis. But sometimes sensory processing differences are actually misdiagnosed as another diagnosis. So it's common for us to see kids in our practice and families saying that the diagnoses don't quite fit. So um, like I mentioned, several families will come with many diagnoses or many ideas or at risk is another, another way that this is being presented to families are at risk for a certain diagnosis. Uh, and it's really common to have the first conversation where the family is saying, it doesn't quite fit. I, I read about it or as the professionals were telling me about it, it doesn't feel like they're talking about my child. Or, and, it could be that the recommendations that are being made don't fit into the family's values, habits, routines, or family goals. 
this is a big piece that I, I like to pause on here and, and just give the opportunity for parents to know that if you are given a certain diagnosis or if the recommendations don't feel like they're helpful or don't feel like they fit into the way you want to parent, you do not have to always follow those recommendations. It's really important to follow that feeling that you have and explore more because so many different ways of looking at the same behaviors can be equated to many different diagnoses and different professionals aren't going to always be informed by every diagnosis. So if you see one professional who specializes in one thing, that is going to be their primary lens. Us too, right? We we focus on sensory emotional processing. And so that is going to be our primary lens when we look at things. But our recommendations have to feel good to the family. And what we're talking about has, has to feel like it represents what they're noticing. So I think the biggest piece here is when a family presents to me with the concern that they have these diagnoses, they don't quite fit their, their child or they don't quite fit their family, it's very, very common that there was a missensory processing difference that is the contributing factor to a, a large contributing factor to the functional challenges that they're experiencing. And it's important to follow that feeling to say, I don't know, I don't know if that's really it, or I don't know if that's only the thing that we're dealing with. Because of this anecdotal experience that I'm describing, that it's more common than not for that child to then also have a sensory processing difference that was not considered up to that point before the family has made it to our practice. So I'll pause here to also share my own parenting experience, um, that there are several different ways that this has showed up in my journey for my kids. So for example, my son has been diagnosed with selective mutism, he has severe allergies and eczema, sensory processing disorder, anxiety, OCD, ADHD, and it it's hard to hear all of that. It's hard to, when I was just kind of preparing for this and saying, wow, that's a lot. But each of those things I don't think are not true for him. It They just show up differently as he develops. So when he was younger, the allergies, eczema, well, I'd say the allergies and eczema are, are consistent challenge. Um, but the selective mutism piece was a huge functional challenge for us where he would not speak outside of our home. And there was an underlying piece to sensory of sensory processing to that, where he his sensory over-responsivity was so strong that it was hard for him to deal with the input coming into his body and communicate with other people, right? The sensory processing disorder was so uncomfortable for him because he had these eczema patches all over his body. So he's over-responsive to touch, and now he's got this annoying sensation on his skin all the time. As he gets older, the anxiety and ADHD um, and the overlap of sensory processing is tends to be a, a larger functional impact to our lives. And as we explored all of these diagnoses personally, each recommendation has worked in different parts of his life. So it's not that we're needing to employ every recommendation that we've ever received every single day of his life, but it allows us to flow with what he needs right then. And for us to look at a certain behavior and say, okay, 
So is this the, is this an allergy flare? Um, is this an over-responsivity sensory flare? Is this anxiety? Um, we also know that they all cause each other sometimes, right? So we have an increase in our in flares for eczema or sensory processing discomfort and anxiety happens. Or we're anxious and then our sensory systems flare, right? So there's a consistent overlap. But I think the important message is that we shouldn't really settle on one way of understanding our kids' behavior. It's always helpful to have a different lens and to understand it differently um, when it doesn't feel like the right fit. So sometimes you get very lucky and you can have one or two assessments and you say, okay, this is it. This is helpful. The recommendations are working um, and we can move forward with these recommendations. It feels good for my family. It feels good for my child. So it's common for professionals to look at these behavior patterns to and not consider the sensory processing component. And I think that's the big message that I'd like to share is that not everybody knows about sensory processing. And if they do know about sensory processing, it's not a full spectrum usually of understanding sensory processing. So sensory processing is way more complex than it's represented to be in, in the general world. Um, it's not just sensitivity to sensations. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that there are many different ways of processing sensation and all of those ways need to be considered when assessing sensory processing, particularly if there is a functional challenge that feels extra tricky and like nothing quite makes sense about that challenge. So one of my goals is to build awareness and to help parents and professionals understand all the different ways that sensory processing differences can present, particularly as they overlap with different behavioral patterns that are representative of each different diagnosis that we might see. So over the next few episodes, we'll examine different diagnoses through a sensory emotional lens. Right now, there's a diagnosis that's on the rise, at least it feels like it is in our area, called pathological demand avoidance. I'm very concerned that there's a risk of children being diagnosed with PDA, pathological demand avoidance, without being considered to have sensory processing differences that are leading to the avoidance. So therefore, families are being misguided or at best not giving a full spectrum of options with recommendations to help their child. So today, I'm going to take time to share the underlying sensory processing contributions to avoidance. So welcome to a sensory emotional lens on avoidance and pathological demand avoidance. So let's share some information first on pathological demand avoidance, and this information is coming from the PDA Society, the Pathological Demand Avoidance Society. Uh, it was founded in 1997, so I do like to say that is a long time ago, right? So when we see an increase or a rise in a certain diagnosis that has been around for a while, that also raises some concerns to me um, on not having a full understanding of what, what we're noticing. So demand avoidance involves not being able to do certain things at certain times, either for yourself or for others. And it also refers to the things that we do in order to avoid demands. So a pathological demand avoidance is said to be all-encompassing and it has some unique aspects. So those unique aspects are many everyday demands are avoided. So it's just things that come up in everyday life. 
that the individual who has the avoidance is feeling a lack of control, an increase in anxiety and panic, and that the demands can the avoidance can be an, have an irrational quality to it. So, for instance, it's the experience or the reaction to the demand doesn't match the demand that's being provided. The avoidance can vary depending on the individual's capacity to have demands at that time. So their level of anxiety, their overall health and well-being, um, and the environment. So I like this particular set of information um, from the from the PDA Society that, you know, I think when we, we hear the beginning, everyday demands are avoided, right? I mean, that can be very general. And that that is the worrisome part to me is that we see somebody not wanting to do something and, and, and saying no or avoiding it. And then they do that over and over and over again. And then they, we've certainly had families say, well, because my child says no to this activity every time this person has said that they have PDA. Right. Um, but I think it's very important for us to look at these informed sources to understand PDA and understand that there's a lot of consideration that's going into this. The PDA Society lists right here that we have to consider the individual's capacity for demands at that time. So what is their, we, we talk a lot here about a coping cup, right? Um, that our, our individuals with sensory processing differences always have something they're coping with, right? And that came to mind when I was reading about this um, from the PDA Society and thinking about that's our coping cup, right? What is the individual's capacity at that time for that demand? What is their mental health abilities? What's their anxiety level? What is the environment? So the environment here, we can think about the sensory processing areas that we that we talk about all the time. And I think it's, we can also pause for a second and put ourselves in this situation. So we all avoid things, right? It's it's a natural way of keeping ourselves safe and regulated is to avoid things that feel not safe and dysregulating for us. So as adults, we might be avoiding doing the dishes, right? Uh, we might be avoiding going to an event because we know we need to wear something that we don't really feel like wearing. Uh, we might avoid a Friday night event that we planned on last Sunday after we had a super calm day and now we just had a Monday through Friday that we are now not able to cope with the demand of the event we scheduled for Friday, right? So we avoid it. We don't go to it. So I think it's very important for us to normalize avoidance and be okay with it. It's okay to avoid things that we don't feel are safe or dysregulating to us. Or safe or regulating for us, I guess I should say. Um, so the PDA profile does represent itself as a spectrum and that it presents differently in different people. So some individuals may externalize. So there might be some physical, aggressive, controlling ways of avoiding activities or demands. And then others are more internalized or passive. So um, being more reserved or quiet or that they're masking the, their participation, their level of interest in the participation that's happening. The PDA Society also says there's a hierarchy of demand avoidance, and I'm def I'm going to come back to this. I, I found this to be very, very interesting and relevant for our kids with sensory processing differences. 
So this demand avoidance hierarchy um, starts with distraction. So it could be changing the subject, engaging in interesting conversation that they're initiating, procrastination or excusing yourself, giving explanations for why you can't do the activity or the, uh, the requested demand, incapacitating yourself. So saying things like my legs don't work, withdrawing into role play or fantasy worlds, taking control and then having a meltdown, right? So with this information, the PDA Society goes on to say that it's a matter of I can't, not I won't. And I think this is the window in which we can view this through a sensory emotional lens. So let's look at why our kids can't versus won't when it comes to demand avoidance. Just like always, I'm going to go through each of our sensory emotional personality styles and highlight why a child with that sensory emotional personality style may experience avoid demand avoidance. So I, I'm going to start kind of backwards. I know I usually start with our anxious yet deeply feeling kids and we sort of flow, flow through sensory registration, sensory discrimination, posture, and then motor planning. I'm actually going to start with motor planning. I think that this is a huge place and very prevalent. Avoidance of demands is highly prevalent for our, our children who have motor planning difficulties or present with their scattered yet intentional and passionate sensory emotional personality. So if you were with us last week, I highlighted that our kids with motor planning challenges may or may not have motor skill weaknesses. So they can do things that are practiced, right? So those motor skills um, look great but they have a hard time with novel or unexpected tasks or tasks that can be variable or different every time they participate in them. Avoidance is a huge indicator that a child can be experiencing motor planning challenges, particularly of this second kind, right? This novel, unexpected, variable activity that's being asked of them to do. I also want to point out that another aspect of avoidance within this profile is uh, parents will often say, well, they can do it. I've seen them. So they must just not want to do it. So remember that under every motor planning challenge, there's a sensory challenge. And so if we have a sensory under responsivity, right, we didn't get in, we need more information to a certain sensory system in order to participate. What if when you saw them do it, they had the just right amount of input, right? So they had the just right amount of sensory input to their bodies where they knew exactly where their body was in space. They knew exactly where their body parts were in relation to other body parts. And they could, in that moment, coordinate the action that was needed to do it in that moment, right? So when we see the presentation of sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't do it, it's really, really comfortable for us to say, you must just not want to do it right? Uh, without considering the fact that our environments and our interactions change all the time. And sometimes we just accidentally get the right amount of input to our body. Or sometimes we're busy as parents and we didn't consider that day our sensory motor profile of our child and we didn't actually support them in getting the right amount of input, um, which usually is a day where we will place more demands. 
right? So if we had a day like that, then we are likely maybe our coping cup isn't quite in the right place. Um, And we weren't able to spend enough time playing and sensory motor play and providing the sensory lifestyle that our child needs that day. And we also have a lower capacity in ourselves to do things for them. So we may be then asking them to be more independent than we would normally and, and we see them avoiding, right? So not only did we generally not expect them to do those things on their own where we can be more available for them, but we generally may have supported their sensory needs throughout the day better in that situation. So we, we always like to say, well, let's stop and pause and think about the times where they did do it and what was happening in their day and what was happening in their day on the day where they didn't do it. And let's see what was happening from a sensory perspective. So in general, for our scattered yet intentional and passionate SEPs, uh, refusal and avoidance from these kids comes from not knowing what to do, right? So they can look very scattered in their approach as they kind of move around from one thing to another thing, um, trying to figure out what to do or moving away from something because they don't know how to do it or just straight up saying no or I don't know because they don't know how to do it. So our avoidance from our motor planning kids are because they don't know how to do it. And the presentation of the information did not align with supporting them to know how to do it. So that's, on, that's that, begin, that scattered side of this profile. So how do our yets show up? So our yets are, are more of our positive attributes to these sensory emotional personalities. So within this one, it's intentional and passionate. And here we see the yets show up in a way that sounds very similar to the hierarchy of avoidance. So intentionality. We see this intentional excusing of themselves from an activity. So I'm actually going to follow exactly the hierarchy that was presented by the PDA Society. So distraction, changing the subject, right? Talking about a preferred topic. This we see all the time with our scattered yet intentional and passionate kids, our kids with motor planning challenges, where they end up talking to us or directing us to things that they can do, which looks like they're distracted from the task at hand or they're changing the task at hand um, or changing the demand by having a, a beautiful conversation with us about their weekend, right? Kind of tapping into their strength of socializing to distract us away from the demand that we just provided to them. Procrastination was the second one from the PDA Society. So we often hear, I just need to do this one more thing. I just need to do one more thing. Just one more thing, right? So what that looks like within their bodies is they need to finish their current plan, right? So we're asking them to do something in the middle of what they're already doing, which is requiring them to figure out all the steps needed to stop what they're currently doing and then shift gears to our plan and figure out all the steps that are needed to do the things that we're asking them to do. So this procrastination, outward look at that behavior is procrastination. The inward look is, I just need a few minutes to finish my plan and to figure out your plan. The next um, level in the hierarchy from the PDA society is making excuses is the outward look. So the outward look is we're making excuses. So I know I've shared this one, but I love it so much. I'll share it again is in one of our assessments a few weeks ago, one of our kids was asked to fold this little origami task. That was a dog. And he said, I don't like dogs. I only like cats. And so I I can't do that because I only like cats. 
So that was an excuse, right? <laughs> On the out. The outward was, I'm making an excuse for this. Inside, it was, I have no idea how to do what you just asked me to do. Another really common statement is, it's boring. I don't like it. It's stupid, right? Um, which is again and on the outside an excuse for not wanting to participate but on the inside the message that we don't know how the next um, item that was represented was incapacitating oneself this again came up in another um, evaluation just a little bit ago where the little boy who was five said I can't cut because it makes my arms too tired Right. So incapacitating himself is another way of looking at that, where in, in the sensory emotional lens, it was, I don't know how to do that. Um, so he saved face a bit by saying that it makes his arms too tired, right? Instead of saying, I can't do that. Our second yet within this SCP is passion, right? Very passionately engaging in activities that they can do. So this very much, um, overlaps with the PDA's hierarchy in the the higher levels, which is to engage in role play or fantasy play, right? We see this a lot with our kids with motor planning challenges where sedentary play, sedentary activities are that don't require coordination of the whole body are much more comfortable, uh, much more successful. And so they'll engage in that kind of play with figures, um, you know, or they go into a character and embody that character when things get tricky because this character saves me, right? So I'm going to be this person that's not myself rather than myself right now, which avoids them participating in the activity because now they're this character and they're in, full on in that character role rather than themselves that are doing the activity that you're asking them to do. And then lastly, we see taking control as part of the hierarchy of demand avoidance. And for our kids with motor planning challenges, this is a super common strategy under that passion, right? The passionately engaging in what they can do, being the directors of the play, directors of the day, right? Telling everybody how they should do the things and how things should happen around them because then they know how to do things, right? So if I know the plan, I can do the things. So they ask for things to be done a certain way so that they can find success within that play. So without even needing to go into other sensory emotional personality styles or any sensory motor processing differences, one area of sensory motor differences can be used to explain all the different ways of avoidance that were represented within this hierarchy. So this, I hope, highlights the importance of really asking more questions when we when we land on a certain diagnosis. And again, it could be both, right? There could be a pathological demand avoidance diagnosis and motor planning challenges, but using motor planning challenge recommendations will help with the demand avoidance. Um, so I would say if this resonates with you, and I'll say this throughout, I'm not going to spend too much time today on how to help because we've spent lots of time on that in, in this podcast already, and we will continue to do so. I will say that you should keep following if you don't already, um, if this resonates, because we are consistently giving strategies. But two sort of quick go-to ones for um, this particular situation would be break things down into one step at a time directions. Um, to help build that confidence. So 
breaking things down and providing information on how to do that thing, right? So if I go back to the example of the the little boy with the little dog task, I would have said, place your left hand here, place this hand here, and then move it like this, right, to make the first fold. Take your other hand, put it here, move it like that. So not only am I breaking things down into eat one step at a time, which is easy to plan, easier to plan, but I'm giving directions exactly on to how his body should be moving. Praising them and helping them feel accomplished is a, another way to help build that confidence and persistence every step of the way. So the, the big picture here is that we need to support them in a playful, fun way to engage in the task that is being avoided, right? Um, so if we continue to avoid, so if our, our kids with our, our, our this SEP and these underlying motor planning challenges continue to avoid things that they can't plan and coordinate their body to do, then they will not ever have the opportunity to develop that capacity that is underlying the avoidance. So if we were to say, oh, they're avoiding it and I don't want them to reach the meltdown level of demand avoidance, so I'm going to go easy on my demands, which is one of the recommendations that at least are floating around in our area is to not put too many demands, right? And that is very concerning to us because then the child is, is almost confirmed to say, you're right, you can't do that, right? Without the support to persist through that to support their body to do that. So as we engage with our child in the many different ways that we talk about within our sensory emotional engagement model, we are supporting them to not only plan and coordinate and, and execute the action, but to then get the underlying sensory input that they need to support them to do so. Whereas not doing the activity would have basically taken that opportunity away from them to develop the capacities that were at the heart of the avoidance in the first place. We'll move on now to our needy yet compassionate sensory emotional personality. So remembering that these are our individuals that have a weakness in their body, generally in core strength, um, but could be in general muscle weakness across the body. Refusals from these individuals or avoidance from this from the individuals that experience this way of being um, is basically that they're just outright tired. They're fatigued and they don't have the strength and endurance to do the activity uh, or, and they are perceiving that they don't have the strength and endurance to do the activity. So I always say that kids with this SEP are doing a constant cost-benefit analysis, right? So I've got this much energy in my body and this much effort in, in my capacities, and where am I going to place that effort today? Um, and so the weakness or the perception of not being strong enough to do that leads to refusal or avoidance, or they actually legitimately experience it where they go to do the activity and they, they experience that they don't have enough strength to do it and they don't want to ask for help and they, or there's no help being provided to them to support this. And then they'll, they'll just go to the straight avoidance. Now, our yet side here, so that's our one, our neediness, right? We need help in order to do the task. If we don't get the help, then we don't do the task. 
the compassionate side of this um, SEP shows up as showing a lot of affection. So these are our kids that could be avoiding by giving you a lot of affection, right? Hugging, hanging on you and being asked to do something, um, kind of overriding or, or avoiding make, making excuses or procrastinating, if you will, or distracting, if we pull some of the terms from the hierarchy, um, by providing affection, right? So remember, if you've been with us, this affection is is twofold. They tend to be more compassionate with this profile because they feel like they know what it feels like to need help or they're very appreciative of the help that you provide. So the compassion and the affection comes, but this also supports their body, right? So they can sort of be, if you will, stuck in hanging on you and being held by you and and hugging you because you're supporting their body. And by you having them stop that, um, they're needing to move their body and they're needing to use their strength and their own uh, body to do the things that you're asking them to do. So on the outside, this showing of affection could look like they're distracting you or they're procrastinating from doing the tasks or they're, um, or they're in, in a way incapacitating themselves, right? They're saying, I can't do it because I'm hugging you. If I have to, I don't want to stop hugging you, therefore I can't do it. Um, so how do we help? So we help by, again, we want to support them to do the thing that they're avoiding. Um, so we want to do it with them. We want to provide the help so we can adjust the activity so that they're helping you. And so we're tapping into that compassionate side in an active way. So they're, they're still being highly compassionate. They're still able to be with you. And you're saying things like, I need your help with something. And then you start doing it and then invite them to help you to do it. So we're, we're almost bypassing the ability to refuse when we, when we know ahead of time, our kids are needy yet compassionate. They have a weakness in their body. If I ask them to do this demand outright, they're not going to do it or they're going to proceed like they can't. But if I support them and help them, and then I fade back my help, they'll find themselves doing this activity on their own. And just like we just said, the biggest important part here is to help them not avoid, right? So if they don't do the activity because they don't feel like they have enough strength or they don't have enough strength to do it, then they're not given the opportunity to activate the muscles that are needed to gain the strength to then participate. So we're further perpetuating the avoidance due to the lack of strength. So I don't have enough strength to do this activity, therefore I'm not going to do it. We, we stay weak, right? I don't have enough strength. Can you help me? We help them do it. We fade our help. They find success in it. They're then developing the strength that they need in their body to be able to do it eventually on their own. Uh, we'll go back to our anxious yet deeply feeling uh, sensory emotional personality now. So these are our individuals, our kids that are over responsive or respond a lot or too much or are hypersensitive to sensory information coming into their body. And the, the avoidance here is a primal sense of not feeling safe. So we need to check in to see if there are aversive situations in the environment that are causing their bodies to feel not safe. So they will avoid and it's a fight or flight response, right? So we either, we fight or we leave um, or we feign, right? Or we just play dead basically, right? And not move our body. That is the primal fight or flight response. 
that comes from not feeling safe. And our, our kids that have a sensory over-responsivity, this is a real lived experience for them. So they will fight or flight um, or they will try to control the environment. So again, remembering that kind of circling back to the hierarchy of demand avoidance, that taking control is a higher level one, right? Where they're, they're taking control of the situation. And we see that happening for our kids with sensory over-responsivity um, if they're not leaving the situation. So that's our anxiousness, right? Our anxiety experience um, puts us into that fight or flight place where we we need to leave. We can't do the activity. We're not safe. We need to leave this activity. Um, or we need to fight back against the activity to feel safe. Now, our yets of this, our deeply feeling side, our deeply feeling side of this is that we cue into the perception of others around us. So we we know the expectation Right. So one of the um, items on the PDA society was to mask, right, that internalized way of avoiding. Um, this happens a lot with our kids with sensory over-responsivity, where they're cued into the expectation of others around them. They're too worried that they're not going to do it you know, that they have to do it and they do it, um, or they're too worried that they're going to mess it up and then they don't do it. Right, so we get a lot of different reasons for avoidance here with, with uh, an experience of sensory over-responsivity. Um, so how we help, we, we start with helping them assess the environment and the experiences and determining what feels aversive to them and giving them a sense of control and a sense of choice in participation in that aversive experience. So if it is touch experience that doesn't feel comfortable, what will help feel help make them feel more comfortable about that, that touch experience? How can they participate in it so that their body feels safe? Just so within all of our engagement with our kids with sensory processing difference, playfulness is so, so important. I'd say here is a super big one because we need them to feel safe and play gives us a sense of safety so when we playfully engage in what we need them to do we give them a sense of safety and security to participate um, and we usually when we're providing demands that that kind of feels counterintuitive right playfully engage providing demands those don't quite feel like they match so it's very important for us to very intentionally engage in a playful way to bring about that feeling of safety and as I mentioned, we've got lots of different strategies that are represented throughout our podcast and, and also within any, any of our sensory emotional engagement model um, supports that we have in place. So for our anxious and deeply feeling kids, the biggest way we can help them is to help them not avoid an experience that feels like it's aversive and not safe. Um, if we support them in the avoidance, <laughs> um, then their body never gets a chance to reframe that experience as non-threatening. So we enter an experience with an aversive sensory uh, component to it. We don't engage in it. We confirm to our body that that is life-threatening to us and we cannot ever do that. So the reframing of the participation in an activity that our body feels like is not safe is very, very important to move past not avoiding it in the future. The Everything we do in that moment tells that story back to our body. So I don't want to touch that because it's it's going to hurt my body to the point where it's going to be life-threatening. Okay, don't touch it. Okay, okay. next time I see that thing, my body says, red alert, no way, I'm out of here. So 
reframing that to we engage in this playful way of supporting engagement in that now my body has that experience again and I have at least one time where my body did it and it wasn't life-threatening to me and it just needs that one time and then the other time and the other time to reframe that story that your body's being told. So our unaware yet deep thinking sensory emotional personality, This is these are our kids that um, do are slower to register input to their bodies and from the environment. Um, so they're less sensitive to information coming in or less sensitive to information that is coming from their body. So avoidance for these individuals comes from the fact that they may not even be registering the opportunity that is being presented to them. Um, or how to do the things that are being asked of them to do. So imagining a child who has sensory under-responsivity in their body-based system, so their muscles and their spatial system. So that leaves them feeling like they have a decreased awareness of their position in space and a decreased body awareness. Now we ask them to do something. Okay, they're, they're not able to pull from information from their body to determine how to do that thing with their body. Okay, so the avoiding is because I don't have enough information in my body to tell me how to do the thing that you're just asking me to do. So they need more input in order to figure it out. Now, some of our kids, this is where the, how the yet shows up, right? So the unawareness is this lack of participation or refusal or avoidance because we don't have enough information to do it. The yet side, the deep thinking, is sometimes we take a little extra time to figure out how to do it, right? So our visual system may be a strength of ours. So we may use our vision to look at our body and figure out how to do the thing that's being asked of us to do, but that takes more time. And so that time that could be perceived as avoidance, right? Depending on how much time it is that, that it takes to do that. Um, or a child might say, you know, not say out loud, but in their body, I got to get more information to my body before I can do this. So you ask them to do something, they get up, they start moving, they start crashing, they start bumping. And then we pin that as an avoidance to what was being presented to them when really, you know, on the inside, it was let me get more information to my body so that I may be more successful in doing that. So that can look like um, distraction, right? I'm being distracted by moving my body instead of doing the activity that you're giving me. Um, procrastination, I'm doing this instead of doing the thing that you're asking me to do. Uh, making excuses, right? I want to go do this instead of the thing that you were asking me to do. So again, these are not things the kids are saying. They're not saying I'm distracted by this. I'm procrastinating, right? But looking at that PDA hierarchy, we can say, hey, you know what? These kids who are taking a little bit of extra time to do this activity that I'm asking them to do could look distracted, could look like they're procrastinating, could look like they're making excuses, could even look like they're incapacitating themselves, right? So they're sitting there not responding, right? Could be very much like my arms don't work, right? But that is the lived experience for our kids with sensory under-responsivity is their body does not work. It does not work in the way that is being asked of them to move their body to do the thing that you're asking them to do. So how do we help? Um, so we help by first knowing and knowing our kids' profile that they need more information to their body in order to be successful. So we can build in the opportunities for input that will set their body up for success where they are more aware 
not less aware of their body and space and how they can move their body before we place a demand on them. Um, or we give them more time to do what they need to do in order to do the demand. So if we know that we need them to transition or get their shoes on or brush their teeth and they've been sitting on the couch for a half an hour, maybe relaxing and watching a show, we want to give them an opportunity to move their body first and then we give them demand, right? We might even say, listen, we have to leave the house in a little while and you've been sitting for a long time. You better wake your body up, right? Let's do some moving and then we're going to get our shoes on and, and that kind of thing. So again, we need to support them to do the thing that's being avoided. If we continue to support avoidance or not support them to not avoid, um, then they're missing the opportunity to get the input to their body that increases their body awareness and their ability to engage in the future. Uh, We're just not giving them the, the opportunity that they need to be successful. Lastly, we have our confused yet full of wonder sensory emotional personality style. And these are our kids that experience a mismatch in the way that they're understanding the information from the environment and from their body. So this is our sensory discrimination or sensory perception challenges. And refusal for these individuals comes from feeling confused. That's the very first part of the sensory emotional personality. Our kids that have sensory discrimination challenges are are not able to automatically match the movement of their body, the placement of their body, the visual information coming in, the touch, how to form or shape or understand the touch experiences um, are confused. They're surprised, they're confused, they're embarrassed, um, and they don't know how to participate the way that they're quote unquote supposed to be in an activity. So this can look like, uh, oftentimes we describe this as they do the activity, but they don't quite do the activity, right? So they're they're kind of participating in generally what we're asking them to do, but it doesn't quite match what, what we're expecting them to do. Um, so this can very much look like a mismatch in your request. So it could be... It, they could literally have their body in the totally wrong place that, that you want them to be in, which can look like they're procrastinating, right? Not coming to what you're asking them to do right away. Um, it can look like they're distracted because they're not doing the thing exactly the way that you want them to do it. Uh, but in reality, it's that they're trying. They're just not able to do it the right way. Um, or they might have tried and they got confused, surprised, and embarrassed, and now they shut down. Right, So now I didn't do what you asked me to do and I I can't do it, Um, particularly if we come pretty heavily out with our demand again in a way that doesn't support it. Right, Transitions are particularly challenging for our kids with sensory processing differences in this space, the sensory discrimination space. Um, I live this every day of my life with my son with sensory discrimination challenges. Um, and I, I forget sometimes that I'm asking him to make a transition and I, and I'm not giving him support to figure out what I'm talking about. Right. Um, and, and where he needs to go to find his shoes or find the backpack or find the things that, and he's moving his body, he's up and he's doing, he's just not in the right place. And, and I can definitely resonate with me, with my parent self going, I asked you to get your shoes on, right. As he's wandering around the house, wondering where they are. Um, and, and I could easily say he was avoiding my demand to get his shoes on. And sometimes I do. Um, but the, the point is I don't, I need to not persistently think that that's the challenge that I'm seeing. And if I said something more like your shoes are next to the door, 
that would support him in being more successful. So the the full of wonder side of this SCP comes up in this space where sometimes they do kind of sort of figure out what they're doing or they they experiment with it in a different way. Um, so it looks like they're not listening when they're in the middle of this full of wonder space. So I had this again at my house the other day where we were, um, as I mentioned, my son has eczema. And so we were doing like a salt bath because it's one of the recommendations. <laughs> um, and it, I needed a transition to move on to the next thing. And he literally said to me, wait, I'm experimenting. <laughs> I said, of course you are. You're the basis of this SEP development in my mind um, to share with the world. But there was a cup of, there happened to be a cup and there was a very interesting way of a water, maybe not, or maybe staying in the cup, depending on the way that it was going into the tub. And so that is what was happening. But fortunately, he said that exact word and I said, of course you're experimenting. Okay. Let me know when you figured it out <laughs> and then we can move on. Um, but, you know, he's older and we've, he, I, we obviously speak this language in my house a lot. So he was able to give me that feedback. Um, so how do we help? So we provide an opportunity to have space for that experimenting, uh, to know how to do it, right? Knowing that our first way of giving the direction is not going to be the way it happens and making some time and space. And if we don't have that time and space, being very specific and helping them to do the thing the way that we want them to do it. Another strategy that generally helps is liking in it to past experiences. Um, so giving them a reference point for how to do it. So again, with this SEP, the avoidance comes from that sense of confusion. If we don't support them in that experimentation, in that engagement of wonder of how to do the activity, then we are not giving them an opportunity to develop the sensory discrimination capacities that are at the heart of the avoidance in the first place. So many of the therapists here are passionate um, at Great Kids Place about this topic um, one of which is Laura, who has been with us a few times on the podcast. I think an important contribution that she made um, to this information coming to you today is resonated so much with me from an, an OT perspective, which is that the first place to intervene with any of these sensory processing differences is in our action, right? So when we move through the avoidance, we can feel the anxiety, we can feel the hesitance, we can feel the discomfort, the confusion, all the things we just talked about, the emotional experience that we have, and the sensations without avoiding them, right? And then our brain learns, I can do this, right? We move from the I can't to I can, right? We started this by saying that this is an I can't challenge, not an I won't challenge. And if we can understand the avoidance through what is underlying, what is the underlying capacity that is leading to the avoidance, um, which is a a, a general way of talking about PDA for other professionals, not just us. But for us, it's what is the underlying sensory motor challenge that is leading to the avoidance? And how do I help my child move through the avoidance, engaging in actions that support their sensory emotional personality and their way of processing the world? So as you can see, there are many reasons why children can avoid a demand that are given to them. This is just from a sensory motor lens. There's many other ways to um, look at this, but 
I would recommend that if avoidance is something that is coming up for you or if PDA, pathological demand avoidance, is the diagnosis that has been mentioned to you to investigate further if there's a sensory processing contributing factor that's underlying the demand avoidance. Um, and in order to rule this in or rule this out, uh, you you have to really be with an OT that is additionally certified in sensory integration. So I, I'll try not to go on a soapbox here, <laughs> um, but it's very important to know that not every occupational therapist gets sensory integration education. Um, we had one class of sensory integration in my entire occupational therapy educational career. Um, it is in a very costly and time-consuming certification. It's easier to take weekend courses, right? Um, to take one or two, one or two day courses um, on sensory integration. Those are generally just the tip of the iceberg. I say this as an OT, as a young OT, that's what I did to learn about sensory integration. Um, and as my career furthered, really as my parenting furthered. And as I mentioned, my son presenting with all these different ways of being, I knew I needed more education to support him. And I was fortunate enough to have an OT degree and be allowed to <laughs> do this additional certification work. Um, and at the same time, I um, had the great opportunity to work with and meet Lucy Jane Miller, who is the godmother of sensory integration in the way that we believe it and know it right now and, and so honored to be a mentor of mine. Um, and, you know, sometimes life just happens that way where my son was going through all of these things, getting all these diagnoses. I met Lucy. We started working together and then really dove deeper into the sensory integration certification. And it was only then that I knew what I didn't know. So you do your best as a professional to learn as much as you can and you make recommendations based on the information that you know. It, as a parent, it's very important to know that not all OTs know this information in the way that they need to in order to rule in or rule out a sensory integration underlying contributing factor. If a professional says to you, this is not sensory because they're not sensitive to things, ask more questions, right? That is one part of sensory processing and one part that can be contributing to the demand avoidance. If pathological demand avoidance is a diagnosis that's surfacing in your life, please consider these underlying sensory processing differences that we talked about today as a potential cause. Seek help from an OT who specializes in sensory processing. Try some of the strategies that you're hearing here to see if it's part of the picture for you and your family, um, and just keep asking those questions until you find what feels right for you and your child. So we'll be back next week to talk about a sensory emotional lens on challenges with attention and the ADHD diagnosis, and we'll see you then. If you have any specific wonders about the way that your child's processing the world and the emotional expression of that sensory motor capacity, please visit our website, greatkidsplace.com. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please note that the content shared in this podcast is being provided for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
The resources provided are not intended to be therapeutic interventions and individuals should consult with qualified healthcare professionals for personalized guidance regarding their occupational therapy and mental health needs. See you next time.